Good morning. It's great to be together again on a beautiful spring day as uh, hope springs eternal, right? That we may soon be able to make some changes with uh, all that's been going on with us with the pandemic. If you're not already there, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. We're going to be looking at these a few verses and some others today. Uh, but as we get into that, as I was reflecting on this message, and you'll see where where this comes from, uh, something you need to know about me is I, I hate conflict. I, I hate conflict. And I've been known to avoid it by using some techniques that are not necessarily pleasing to the Lord to resolve those conflicts. I've been known to just be quiet and not say anything rather than raise a potentially controversial issue. And I've been known to take the blame and apologize in an attempt to buy peace even though I didn't really need to take the blame, it was just easier to say, yeah, it's my fault, um, and uh, try to smooth things over. But today we're going to look at a, another type of conflict that arose within the church, as we looked at last week. But first, let's review a little bit. In the first part of Acts 15, we see that Paul and Barnabas traveled to Jerusalem to discuss a conflict involving these new Gentile believers of whether they needed to obey the law of Moses to be saved. Paul and Barnabas travel back to Antioch with the letter that after much discussion affirms that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone plus nothing. Jew and Gentile are brought together in the one church of God with no added requirements. And now we find Paul and Barnabas still in Antioch uh, in chapter 15, verse 35, Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. But today's passage relates a, a, what I see as a sad chapter in Paul and Barnabas' relationship. We see a conflict of a different sort than we saw last week. Last week in Acts, early part of Acts 15, this was a family conflict. This involved the whole church. Everyone was involved with this. Today it is between two friends and two co-workers who spent 15 years serving and traveling together. They're the ones that spent two years together in the, what's been called the first missionary journey that we looked at a couple weeks ago. And this is, there's a different type of resolution to that conflict than what we saw with the, uh, the family conflict in the church. So the account is simple enough on the surface. Scott read that for us. Uh, Paul invites Barnabas to return to the churches that they visited before, that they had established before, to, in Paul's words, to see how they are. They had gone to Cyprus and then Perga and Antioch and Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Paul wanted to go back, retrace their steps and see how everything was doing. And Barnabas wants to take John Mark along with them. If you look in verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. And Paul disagrees. Paul does not want to take John Mark with them. Uh, Paul, is concern, Paul is concerned related to Mark's past behavior and his past track record. If you turn over to chapter 13, verse 5, it says there that uh, at the end of that verse, they had John Mark to assist them, or John to assist them. His other name was, was Mark. And then down in verse 13... Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, which was in uh, Cyprus. They came to Perga in Pamphylia 
And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John left them. And actually, back in Acts 15, Paul's concern is that Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them. That word can also mean had deserted them. Mark had deserted them. So they had gone through Cyprus, and Mark deserted them and returned to Jerusalem. Now Barnabas wants to take Mark along this time as well, even knowing that history. Barnabas wants to take him along. Well, Luke records here in verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement over John Mark. And the disagreement was so sharp that Paul and Barnabas separate from each other and go different directions. Now, one way I try to understand this passage to, to soften its blow is to say, well, sharp disagreement, you know, it was just a, yeah, I want to do this, I want to do that. No, the word defined by one dictionary is a severe argument based on intense difference of opinion. There's no way to soften the tone of this term here. So Barnabas takes Mark and heads one way to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas and goes another way. He goes north. And I think it's safe to say that there was pain in this parting. There was pain in this parting. So what are we to make of this sharp disagreement that was so severe that two mature, capable, gifted men who had worked so well together for the past 15 years, this was not a a short relationship that caused them to part company. And at one level, it's just plain sad. I just, it, it breaks my heart to look at this. Well, can we assign blame? Well, Paul, you're just being too hard-headed and stubborn. Barnabas, you're being too idealistic. Maybe you're being a little naive. Mark did abandon you after all. Well, maybe both are to blame, or maybe neither. Was this tempers flaring with angry words, or was this two men with very strong opinions on what should happen next who couldn't come to an agreement? What we know is this was not an issue of doctrinal clarity like last week. They needed clarification of the doctrine of the church, of the teaching about the church, the Gentile question that we looked at last week. That's not what this was. This wasn't doctrinal clarity. And Luke doesn't clearly tell us. There's, there's no clear sin issue laid out here. He doesn't take sides of which was right and which was wrong. It appears that this was an issue of logistics, of preference, of ministry philosophy. Luke just doesn't answer these questions. He just states the facts, which means that I and we have to be a little careful filling in the, in the gaps with speculation. But we can't resolve all the questions. But I think we can paint the picture a little more with a little more color and a little more detail if we look closer at the bookends of this story. So we have this story, but there are some bookends to that. And I think if we look at that, we can get a better picture of what actually happened here and what God was doing with this. Normally, our study in Acts has been we come to a section, we come to a chapter, and we pretty much stay there. But today, I'm asking you to join me in a journey as we trace a thread through the book of Acts and actually a little bit beyond. So we're going to start, we're going to go back 15 years before this separation, a little time, a little before A.D. 35. And we're going to find where we first meet Barnabas. If you want to turn there, you can, uh, just to make sure I'm not misleading you in any way. But we first meet Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. 
the early church has been established. There are many new believers from among the Jews. And we find out about Barnabas that, let me see, his, in verse 36, he was called Joseph. That was his given name. He was Joseph. But the apostles called him Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement, son of encouragement. We also see that he was from Cyprus. He was a native of Cyprus. But that word encouragement is an interesting word. It, it can mean comfort, and it can mean coming to one side to help, to give aid. So Barnabas was known by the apostles, even at this early stage of the young church, as the son of encouragement. We also see his generous heart. In verse 37, it says he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He was donating the proceeds of this property that he owned for the aid of the needy in this new church. There were poor among them, and he sold this piece of property. So he was the son of encouragement, the son of one who would come alongside to aid someone to provide for help. Well, we're introduced to Saul in Acts 7 and 8. Now, Saul was very different when we first meet him. Saul was a Pharisee, one of the Jewish religious leaders who basically hated Jesus. And not only did he hate Jesus, but he hated Jesus' followers. He hated Christians, and he is seeking to destroy them. Look at some of the language that is used. <clears throat> the first Christian who was killed because of their faith that we're aware of is Stephen, and Saul presided over that. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says he approved of his execution. Down in verse 3, it said, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. Can you imagine that? He was going to house after house after house. And if he found people who were willing to confess the name of Jesus Christ, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Over in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. He was on his way to Damascus to find if there were any Christians there. And he was going to arrest them and put them in jail and possibly kill them as well. God had other plans for Saul. Jesus meets Saul on this road to Damascus, and Paul, or Saul, he later becomes named Paul, Saul becomes a believer in Jesus and is set apart by God to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. Chapter 9, verse 15, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Well, as a brand new believer, Paul is very excited now, and he wants to associate with the new believer. So he travels to Jerusalem, and if you look in verse 26 in chapter 9, he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Now imagine if you were a disciple, you're your aunt and uncle had just been carried off and thrown into jail by this guy, and he's, he's now showing up saying, hey, I'm one of you. Right. They did not believe, it says, they were afraid of him. They were all afraid of him. And they did not believe that he was a disciple. They didn't trust him. They were afraid to associate with him. And we can understand why. But I love verse 27. Look what it says. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the disciples and declared to him 
declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. I can just see Barnabas putting his arm around Paul's shoulder and say, guys, no, let me tell you about what happened to this man. Barnabas saw the grace of God in Paul's life and was willing to vouch for him. He gives witness to the grace of God in Saul's life. Well, let's fast forward now to Acts chapter 11. The gospel comes for the first time to a largely Gentile area, and the church is established in Antioch, almost exclusively a Gentiles, or at least majority Gentiles instead of Jews. So this new local church is started, and when the church of Jerusalem, if you look in verse 22, this, the report of this, what is this? That the, this church now has been established that is mostly Gentile. Up to this point, the church was mostly Jewish. This church is now mostly Gentile. When, the, when it came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, what did they do? They sent Barnabas to check it out. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. They sent the son of encouragement to check it out. And Luke tells us a couple things about him. At first it says what he did. When he got there, in verse 23, when he came, he saw the grace of God. He saw the grace of God. The second thing is that he was glad. He was happy. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful. He saw the grace of God. He recognized what God was doing in the lives of these new believers. He was glad. He rejoiced. He was happy. And he exhorted them to remain faithful. You know that word exhorted is the same word of, as encouragement. It's the same word in the Greek. He encouraged them to remain faithful. The son of encouragement gave them courage. He encouraged them to remain faithful. And then Luke takes some time to not only say what Barnabas did, but he also tells us who he is. In verse 24, he was a good man. He was a good man. He was a man of high character, a man who was trustworthy. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was a man being led by the Spirit of God, not by his own selfish desires, not by his own wishes, but he was being led by the Spirit of God. And he was a man full of faith. He was a man who trusted God and his word. Well, what happened as this new church is getting established and Barnabas comes up and he encourages them, it says there at the end of verse 24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. A great many people were added to the Lord. And again, I just love this, what happens next. So Barnabas is there. He sees what's going on. He is a capable teacher. Capable teacher. He's a gifted teacher. He's able to get alongside people and help. So he sees this work going on. And so does he stay there and dig in and continue to work? No, look what he does in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. The son of encouragement realizes this work that's going on. He knows Paul is in Tarsus. He doesn't know where, but he knows he's there. He goes to Tarsus finds him. Luke doesn't tell us how long it took him to find him, but he stayed at it until he found him. And then 
you can envision him putting his arm around Saul and say, Saul, I'm asking you to join me here. Just see what's going on at Antioch. They need you here. He travels 130 miles to get to Tarsus. This is not like going down the street a couple miles. This is a 130-mile at least journey. He looks for Saul till he finds him and brings him back. He comes alongside Saul to bring him down in the work of God to increase Saul's opportunities and his effectiveness. And Luke tells us that for a whole year, they worked together teaching many people. So what's the point of this? Well, the point of this so far is, who is Barnabas? Barnabas, as Luke tells us, is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And he's the son of encouragement. He's a master of seeing the grace of God at work in someone's life and then coming alongside them to advocate for them, to mentor them, to co-labor with them. And we see that God used him at key points in Paul's life to encourage his work among the Gentiles. And it is Barnabas and Saul, later known as Paul, who are sent from Antioch on that two-year first missionary journey that we looked at in Acts 13 and 14. And again, I believe it a testimony to Barnabas's character because when they start the trip, if you look at the narrative in Acts 13 and 14, the trip starts with Barnabas and Saul. And it changes in chapter 13, verse 43, to Paul and Barnabas. It was Barnabas and Saul and changes to Paul and Barnabas. So we come back to their sharp disagreement now in chapter 15. But let's look at this disagreement with this fuller understanding of who Barnabas is. Verse 37 says Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Luke doesn't give us the details, but it's easy to surmise putting the pieces of this story together that Mark is immature, he is fearful, he loves Jesus, and yes, he left them. He deserted them early in their first trip. But Barnabas sees the grace of God at work in Mark's life. And once again, the son of encouragement does what he does best. He comes alongside Mark to encourage him, to train him, to mentor him, just like he did with Paul. On the other hand, Paul knows that this journey is long and hard. The dangers are real. Remember, Paul had been driven out of one city, threatened to be harmed in the next, and actually stoned and left for dead in the third. Mark abandoned them once, and that was before the opposition really heated up. They really didn't have a lot of opposition on Cyprus, and Mark abandoned them right after Cyprus. So Paul's saying, I don't think it's worth the risk. It's not worth the added burden to take along this one who already abandoned us, deserted us once. And so with irreconcilable priorities, they separate. They go their own way. Barnabas takes Mark and goes to Cyprus. Now, if you think about that, there's something interesting there. First of all, Cyprus is Barnabas' home. That's where he grew up. Cyprus was also the first stop on Paul and Barnabas' original missionary journey, and it was one of the places that Paul wanted to go back to. Remember, he said, we want to go back to the the churches. And it was after Cyprus that Mark left them. So I wonder, is Barnabas going to familiar territory to retrace their steps to give Mark a chance to grow and mature? It's hard to say for sure, but it's likely more than a coincidence. 
And for what it's worth, this is the last chance we hear, or the last time we hear of Barnabas in the book of Acts as he takes Mark to Cyprus. Paul picks Silas and heads the other direction, to the other cities that they had visited before, to Derby, to Lystra, to Iconium, and then even beyond into new cities that they hadn't been to before. And we'll look at that later in future studies. But whether it's intentional or not, I find this interesting. Whether it's intentional or not, they split up the job that Paul originally wanted them to do. Paul wanted to revisit the churches, and they end up splitting up, splitting the job up. So Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus, which was one of the places Paul wanted to go to. And then Paul and Silas go to Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, which is the other place that Paul wanted to go to. So this split ended up still accomplishing the original purpose, just a different way than they had originally planned. So we have looked at the disagreement and the separation and a bit of the backstory, but I believe the full weight of the story is not over yet as we look at Paul and Barnabas. There are two passages, one which I'm going to just refer to briefly, but another one we're going to spend some time in. The first one is 1 Corinthians 9, and you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. You're certainly welcome to if you like, and you could read it later. That'll be your homework today. You can read 1 Corinthians 9, particularly verse 6. In this letter to the Corinthians, Paul is defending himself to those in Corinth who are questioning his credibility. And as he does so, he refers to Barnabas by name, and he speaks of him respectfully as an equal and as one who possibly was working with him together in Corinth. Whatever the nature of their disagreement was, it seems, as I said before, it was a disagreement over the logistics of making this trip. It was not a personal offense, and it did not damage their relationship, at least permanently. We don't know, but Paul, again, speaks very respectfully of Barnabas as an equal. But what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is a passage that gives me chills at times and under the right circumstances will bring me to tears for several reasons as we get into this. This is now A.D. 65, 30 years after Paul and Barnabas originally meet, 15 years after they split up. Second Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy, Paul's spiritual son. Timothy was a man that Paul brought under his wing and discipled him and nurtured him and then sent him out and considered him his spiritual son. And Paul knows that he is going to die soon executed by the Emperor Nero. These are his final fatherly words to Timothy. Second Timothy, and particularly the passage we're going to read, are Paul's final fatherly words to Timothy. They're very personal, they're very warm, and it's also very sobering as he realizes, and as we realize as we read through this, what is about to happen. So I'm going to read 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 13. And I'd like to see if we can get into this, not just looking at the words, but can we enter into the feeling of what's going on here. 
And as I read these, not only am I asking you to get into the feeling of this, I'm asking you to look for Barnabas, to see where Barnabas is in these verses. Starting with verse 6 of chapter 4. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. How many of you saw Barnabas in this passage? It's a little tricky. Okay, well, stay tuned because I think we'll see him. Paul knows that the end is coming soon. He says in verse 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He knows his life is soon to be over. The time of my departure has come. And he reflects on that. He says, in this life I have fought the good fight. And he's looking forward to seeing Jesus, to being at home, getting his eternal reward. And he's also alone. Can you feel that? He says, Luke alone is with me. Only Luke is with me. Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, the writer of Acts, and a frequent fellow traveler, he says, only Luke is with me. Demas was a co-worker. He has turned his back on God, and he's turned his back on me, and he's left. He's in love with this present world. As far as Crescens and Titus and Tychicus, I have sent them to other places. And we read about at least uh, Titus and Tychicus and other places. He sends them off as his messengers, as his emissaries. He sent them because there was work that needed to be done. And so these men are gone. Only Luke is with me. Who does Paul want to see in his final days? Who does Paul want to see? There are two people. And just look at verse 9. He tells Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Do you hear the longing? Do you feel that longing? He wants Timothy to come. And I think the urgency is both an urgency of desire that I really long to see you. It's also an urgency as he doesn't know how much time he really has left. We don't know if Timothy ever made it before Paul was executed. We don't know. But you can hear the urgency and the feel in Paul's voice Do your best to come to me soon. But who else does he want to see? Look what he says in verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. He wants to see Mark. He wants to see this one that caused this original split up between Paul and Barnabas. 
of the two people Paul most wants to see at the end of his life, one of them is Mark. So what did Barnabas do with Mark when they separated from Paul and left for Cyprus? We don't know the details, but here we see the end result. The one who Paul previously did not consider to be useful for that second missionary journey, Paul now considers to be very useful to him. And it's interesting to note that Mark is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark wrote that Gospel. And if you look at the timing of when the separation occurred and when they think the Gospel of Mark occurred, he probably wrote that Gospel a few years after that separation and before this time that Paul is talking about. Whatever happened to Mark's life in his early years, God was not done with him. God was not done. What I see here is the son of encouragement continues his work to come alongside people and nurture the grace of God in their lives. Barnabas' name is not mentioned in this passage, but his fingerprints are all over it. Because when Paul says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry, what was the difference between the Mark that was not useful and the Mark that is useful? It's Barnabas. It was Barnabas' influence, and I'm sure God used other things as well. But Barnabas is the one who saw the grace of God in Mark's life and put his arm around him and said, let's go. We're going to Cyprus. There's some things we need to learn together. What kind of application can we bring to this as we reflect on this separation of Paul and Barnabas? As I was looking through this, one question we could ask is, what are Paul and Barnabas doing? (laughs) But I think a better question is, what is God doing with Paul and Barnabas? It's really not about what Paul and Barnabas are doing. It's about what God is doing with Paul and Barnabas. Even if one or both of them was completely wrong in this situation, the real question is, what does God do with this separation? Well, there are two things. First, two things that I see anyway. First, where there was one team, now there are two. You could call it multiplication by division. Multiplication by division. They had a very effective team of Paul and Barnabas, and now you have two teams, one led by Paul taking Mark, and one led, I'm sorry, one led by Barnabas taking Mark, and one led by Paul taking Silas. Where there was one team, there are now two accomplishing the work that God wanted to to have done. Paul continues his work of preaching the gospel in Gentile areas and establishing new churches, and Barnabas continues his work as a son of encouragement, coming alongside someone in need of help and encouragement. Barnabas is a man of great character, and there's no indication that that changed just because of this separation. Mark is discipled, mentored, and matures into a man is very useful to Paul. And in ways, as we saw, that are not fully recorded, Paul and Barnabas remain co-laborers to whom Paul can refer affectionately and respectfully to. So it doesn't make sense to me why Paul and Barnabas had to split up, at least in the midst of a sharp disagreement. Maybe they would have sat down and said, okay, here's what we got to do. And I think maybe it's best if we split up. Why don't you take Mark and go here and you take... Silas and go here. No, it was in the midst of this sharp disagreement. 
it doesn't make sense to me, but there are some questions that we can ask for ourselves. Are there difficult things in your life that just don't make sense? I look back over things that have happened in my personal life and in the life of our church, and I look at them and they still don't make any sense to me. I do not understand why these things happen. But that doesn't mean that God is not working to accomplish his purposes. God is able to and chooses to work in our lives using our personalities, our strengths, our weaknesses, our failures to do his work in us and through us. God is at work. The second thing I'd like us to look at here as we try to consider how this applies to us is who are the key players in this story and how do you relate to them? Well, there are at least four, four main key players here. I'd like to consider first Paul, Mark, and Barnabas. All of these men are believers who are on the same road. There are different places in their journey, but they are all believers on the same road, just like us. Well, not many of us are Paul. Not many of us are Paul. Set apart by God for a prominent ministry. He traveled many miles to establish churches. He suffered much for the sake of the gospel. He wrote much of the New Testament. But it's interesting to note that Paul needed both Barnabas and Mark. And God provided both of them at just the right times when Paul needed them. So even though we may not have or called to a ministry like Paul's with his prominence in the things that he did, still we are people in need of help. And just as God brought Barnabas and Mark into Paul's life, he can bring Barnabas's and Mark's into our lives. Well, what about John Mark? Have you ever been like John Mark? Huge dreams, big plans, started off strong. Can you imagine when they invited him to go along in this first missionary journey? Again, Luke doesn't tell us, but I can imagine there was some excitement and some anticipation there, and then something went wrong. The going got too tough. It wasn't what I signed up for. Made some bad choices along the way. You bailed out, failed, deserted. And now you're convinced that a meaningful life is all over. You ever been there? I don't know about you, but I've, I've been there. So where was God in John Mark's life with this failure, with this desertion? Well, God was pursuing him, rescuing him, training him, restoring him, preparing him. And Barnabas was one of the main tools that God was using as Barnabas, the son of encouragement, came alongside to help. That same God is your God, my God. He will send the helpers you and I need to enable us to get where God wants us to go. It would do us well to listen to those helpers. Well, what about Barnabas? We've looked at Paul, we've looked at Mark. What about Barnabas? Barnabas is the son of encouragement, the one who sees the grace of God at work in the lives of others and comes alongside to help, recognizing that Though the grace of God is at work, they're not perfect. They need help. You know, we can all be a son or daughter of encouragement. What a great thing to, be, to be said of us, right? That's a son of encouragement. That's a daughter of encouragement. We can all be grace detectors. We can be looking for God's work in each other, in our children, in our spouse, in our coworkers, in fellow believers here at Grace Chapel or elsewhere, people in the community. We can... Be grace detectors. Many of you have been encouragers to me at various times, and it has meant a lot. 
I want to especially actually take this time to call out my fellow elders, Paul, Matt, Chris, Glenn, Scott. Over the past few weeks, each of them has been a source of encouragement to me. Some, when I intentionally sought advice, some went out of their way to say something because they felt they wanted to say it. Others, we were just in conversation and they said something that was very encouraging. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, to ask God to bring someone to your mind who you could encourage. Is there someone in your world who could use a word of encouragement? Or is there someone that you can thank who's been an encouragement to you that you can acknowledge that? Don't just think about doing it. How many times do you do that? You know, I really should talk to this person. I should really tell him I appreciated that. Or I need to talk to this person because I need some perspective. We talk about it. We think about it. Well, let's make it a priority to do it. You have no idea how valuable that encouragement may be in that person's life, as well as in your own as you seek counsel. Many years ago, I heard someone say from this pulpit, no one has ever, ever suffered from too much encouragement. No one has ever suffered from too much encouragement. We all need it. We are all capable of giving it, and for some reason we seem so reluctant to give it at times. Well, I mentioned four people. So we looked at Paul, Mark, and Barnabas. Who's the fourth in this story? Well, that's God himself. He is the great encourager. I'd like to read something from Philippians 1. Verse 6, Paul, and this is again Paul writing, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How encouraging is that? God is not out to get us. He's not out to wait till we get it right. God is committed to working in our lives to see us safely and victoriously through to the end. He uses our personalities, our strengths, our weaknesses, our failures, our successes. He uses all of that to get us there. And he is committed, Paul says. He says, I am convinced. I am convinced. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. See, that's the gospel the gospel is not just about people trusting in Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for their sins, rising from the dead, and they go from unbelief to belief. That's not, that is the gospel, but that's not all the gospel is. The gospel is also God taking believers whose lives need to be restored and renewed and growing, and it's transforming, to, transforming us to make us more like Jesus. So the gospel indeed is, yes, people coming to faith in Jesus from unbelief to belief. But it's also believers growing in grace, understanding who God is, understanding how to put off the sins that weigh us down and becoming more and more conformed to the image of God. So this story about Paul and Barnabas and Mark and Silas is not ultimately about them or who was right or who was wrong. It is about the God of all encouragement who is building his church, transforming his people even one at a time in spite of all opposition. And God has promised he will not stop until that work is completed for our good and for his glory. And so may each one of us 
like Paul and Mark and Barnabas, be willing participants in the work of God to encourage and build up his people. Let us be known as sons and daughters of encouragement among one another. Amen. Let's close this time with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I want to thank you for this account of Paul and Barnabas and Mark. I want to thank you for the reminder that these men were human beings just like us with their strengths, their weaknesses, their faith, their failures. But more importantly, thank you for this reminder that it is you who is at work in all of our lives to complete your purposes in each of us as individuals, as a local church, and in fact, in the entire universe. May we know, like Mark, that with you, failure is never final. And may we strive to be like Barnabas, sons and daughters of encouragement, looking for your grace at work in one another's lives and encouraging one another along the way. And we pray this in the beautiful and powerful name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.